so we're continuing. We're digging back into our message series on offense, entitled The Grudge. Oh, anybody got some grudges that are still hanging on to them? Anybody? Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the, um, you know, several weeks ago um, talking about how to avoid the bait, to avoid the snare, that, that trap of Satan, right, about getting hurt by offense. We learned about how to get healed from those hurts when we are offended. Um, but so far, it's been interesting. We've been talking all about the person who is offended. We haven't spent any time talking about the bonehead offender, right? The offender. Nobody likes that term, do they? Anybody ever been an offender in the criminal system? It's not fun. Yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of sticks with you. It's kind of a sticky thing, you know. Um, that's all right. Praise be to God, right? Every day is a new beginning. Woo! But yeah, we've all played the part of the offender as well. We previously learned that offense comes from the Greek word scandalon, right? The Hebrew word pa. It's defined as that movable stick or trigger of a trap. Any impediment placed in the way causing one to stumble or fall or the source or agent of calamity. Whew, it's a mouthful, but you get the idea. Something that trips you up. Something that traps you and snares you. Today, we're looking at the Greek word, very similar, scandalizeo, to put a stumbling block in place or impediment in the way upon which another may trip and fall. Pretty easy, right? I mean, this is the, this is the person who puts the, um, the trap in place, the offender. You know what always bothered me about the word impediment? Not only is it hard to say, but if you have a speech impediment, I pity you. Trying to explain to people that you have a speech impediment. Why could it just be a speech, ugh, you know? It's just so mean and cruel, you know? Gosh. It's like giving a diabetic a donut and asking them to have a low sugar, you know? I mean, it just it doesn't, doesn't happen for speech impediment people. Get all the peas out. All right, so this can happen quite intentionally or completely accidentally, having no idea, right? And, of course, we know Satan is the master of deceit. Right? He is. And at times, he will use us. He will use us, and we don't even realize it or know it. He will use us to cause others to stumble and to fall without realizing it ever even happened. Now, from my personal perspective, as I read through the biblical accounts, because I've been struggling with this one, there's been a reason I waited to kind of talk about the topic of the offender, because it just seems so messy and complicated. So, I'm God gave me sort of this, this way of us understanding. From my perspective, from what I see as I read through the scriptures and just through life experience, it seems to be there's three different scenarios. Do you guys make your threes that way or this way? I'm, I'm a Weeblos three, three kind of guy, but some people do the pinky thing, so sorry. I, I'm, I'm really dragging my feet to get here. I don't want to talk about the offender. In any case, three different scenarios where we can find ourselves offending others. The first step in figuring out how we as an offender need to respond to offense is discerning which of these three scenarios the offense occurred in. Either, first of all, we unknowingly offend someone. We accidentally cause them to stumble. First scenario, you had no idea it even happened, completely ignorant to the fact. Second, we maliciously offend someone intending to cause them to stumble and fall and get hurt. You did it because you knew their button and you just pushed that sucker as hard as you could, right? 
You maliciously offended somebody, causing them to stumble and fall and to get hurt. This is the whole millstone scenario, right, that we talked about at the beginning of this series. Deserve to have millstone hung around your neck, but on the ocean floor. Then there's the third scenario. We purposefully offend someone to get their attention and to save them. This is the one that really was chirping me up, and because we'll talk about it here. But as for a way for us to better understand these from an emotional or spiritual perspective, let's first look at a physical, you know, sort of a, an analogy of how these three play out from a physical perspective. So first of all, you unknowingly, you got your foot out, you're hanging out in a chair, and then somebody walks up behind you and they trip over your foot. You didn't mean to trip them, you had no idea they were even there, but it happened, right? You know, you just, you, totally accidentally, unintentionally, okay? You, you caused them, however, to trip and to fall. Okay, so how would you respond if that happened? Yeah, help them up, apologize, you know, make sure they're all right, you know, you know, exactly. All right, second, we maliciously offend someone. You see your enemy, if you guys are into, anyways, obviously nobody is into, so I can tell that by the expressions on your face. Um, so if, if you see that jerk coming towards you with their lunch tray and you're just like, you know, <laughs> they trip, they fall, they get their food all over their face, they're embarrassed in front of everybody, and you're like, <laughs> you know, yeah. How, how, how would you respond to that one? <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that one. That's the hard one. Then third, you see someone face buried in their phone walking along the sidewalk, right? Anybody ever see that happen in today's world? There's a car speeding by, and they're about ready to walk out in front of them. So you run over and shove them out of the way to save them from getting hit by the car, right? I mean, how would you respond to that situation? Like, what were you thinking? Right? <laughs> so these are very simple, physical scenarios that make it a little easier to understand how a person can cause offense. You're an offender. Also, what the intent and what the motive was. However, offense is rarely that cut and dry and black and white and understandable, right? Rarely is offense. When you're the offender, is it ever that clear? Um, there's obviously, there's you know, usually several perspectives towards the offense. Um, those perspectives from different people toward the offense typically contradict one another, um, which adds conflict to offense. And then the offense causes offense, which offends the offender, and now they're offended at the offendee. And you see, isn't that just what Satan loves to do? Just get everybody all tripped up and snared up in this thing. It's a nasty web of a net, and it can be very difficult to get free from. Very difficult to get free from. And man, I'll tell you what, number one place where the enemy loves to do this in? Church. Church. If he can get you divided and offended at one another, man, he... He just has to sit back and watch y'all squibble and squabble and hate each other. He's got the easiest job in the world, doesn't he? And we fall for the bait all the time. Let's say, for example, you know, one person says that they unknowingly offended someone. But the offended one says it was intentional and malicious. They knew exactly what they were doing. And then all of a sudden that offender is offended, right? Uh, let's say that one person says that they, they intended only good and to help the person. They meant no harm by causing the offense. And yet the offended person says, well, they're just out to make me look bad, you know, and then they're offended, and it goes on and on and on. Because what is that, that little phrase that we said at the beginning of this series? Hurt people hurt people, right? It's just a reality. 
hurt people hurt people. Now, most of this comes down to a matter of heart attitude, heart motive, heart motive. There's some truth that we all need to grab a hold of before we continue on into this lesson and teaching or whatever you want to call it. Prophetic word, a word of warning, whatever it may be for you. There's only one whom truly knows and can reveal heart motives. And that's not even us. I don't even know my own heart motive. I think I know it, but we're going to look at a few scriptures here. We ourselves are not even fit to judge our own hearts in this matter. Only God himself knows and can reveal our heart motives. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. Sorry, it's probably a little hard to read from the back, huh? But all a person's ways seem pure to them. But motives are weighed by who? The Lord. All your ways seem right and pure to you, right? But it's the Lord only who weighs motives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, Paul wrote and he said, I care very little if I'm judged by you. Right? Only God can judge me. That was a cool song in the 90s for those of you who didn't grow up in that era anyways. Yeah, care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait, wait until the Lord comes. Man, we have a hard time waiting on the Lord, don't we? Especially when we're ticked off and offended. Especially when we get blamed for offending somebody. We want to justify ourselves and, and defend ourselves. And, you know, we don't want to be wrong in anyone's eyes. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Straight to the heart. All of this boils down to a heart motive of whether it's one, two, or three. And you may think you did it innocently. You may think you did it trying to save the person, but there may actually be some malicious motives in your heart that you don't even know about. Um, in fact, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Um, this is what Jeremiah 17, 9 teaches us. The heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. Who can understand it? Man, our hearts deceive us. We think we got nothing against the person, but really, really, only the Lord can test and know that. Because here's a deceitful thing about deceit. A person deceived is deceived. They don't know they're deceived, right? They, they don't know. If the deceived knew that they were deceived, then they would not, in fact, be deceived, right? They think their ways are pure. Their motives are pure. They don't know they're deceived. Their heart has deceived them. They think they're right. They think they've done no wrong. They truthfully think that their heart motives are pure and sincere. However, it may be very well that their hearts are deceived. And that is why, when we're accused of being the offender, we should always start, always start by looking at ourselves. And not us looking at ourselves, asking God to look at ourselves. Go to, go to the Psalm of David, Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24. David cried out and he said, search me, God, know my heart. Because he knew that's the source of all things of life, right? Know my heart. Test me. That's a bold prayer, isn't it? Asking God to test you. Allowing God to know my anxious thoughts. 
and then asking God to see if there's any offensive way within me, and then to lead me into the way everlasting. David knew how deceitful the heart can be, and so he first went to the Lord, asked the Lord to search him, to know him, look for any offensive way within him, test his heart, and then to lead him into the way everlasting. And that should be our prayer too. That's where it should start when we are accused of being the offender. When you have offended somebody, let the Lord search you, test your heart, and reveal that to you. Because Jesus is the only one involved who can truly make a right judgment. After all, our, our judgment could be very well obscured by a deceived heart where we think we're right but we're really not we all have a far easier time seeing faults in others than we do in ourselves we really do it's just you know part of the sin nature that we're still struggling to crucify here we have an easier time seeing fault in other people than we do in our own selves that's why jesus warned us jesus warned us here in matthew chapter 7 you're probably familiar with the very first three words of this but you definitely need to go on in the rest of the chapter. Whenever we read the scriptures, you'll hear us say often, context is king. Yeah, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, but context, it's a king when it comes to interpreting and understanding the scripture correctly. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see what Jesus' heart desire is here? He wants everybody to be healed and set free. He cares about your offense and your sin as much as your brother's offense and their sin. In fact, he wants to help you to help your brother. It's just, it's really hard. I don't know if you've ever had a plank in your eye. I've dealt with teeny tiny little splinters. I had, oh man, I was using a grinder once and got, got a little bit of metal in, in the one part. Not fun at all. Ugh. Nate, when he was a tiny little guy, he, he cut his retina somehow. and Oh, it's just awful. Ugh. Can't imagine a plank. But think about that. You get this big old plank hanging out your eye. Here, let me get that sawdust, that little speck out. You know, it's just awkward. No, get yourself taken care of first so you can help them. So the desire of Jesus is to get everyone involved free and healed and delivered. That's his desire. Now, this is a whole other message for a whole other time, but you, you can't just take that judge not part or, or do not judge and I don't understand why these are cool Bible crafts for kids to make a plank. I, anyways, I'm sorry. I don't know. I just I came across that in my Google image search, and I'm like, who in their right mind? Like, that's just weird. I don't know. If Becky sees me carrying in a uh, bundle of two-by-fours to children's church, she's going to be like, no, 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 no. That's just a bad idea. But Jesus goes on into this chapter to teach us how to make a right judgment by the fruits of people's lives. He actually warns us that there are wolves walking around in sheep's clothing, looking to devour us. Also in Matthew chapter 7, the single verse has been misused and mistaught, taken way out of context to mean something that Jesus never meant it to mean. 
He does not want you to be a person who walks through life never using your judgment, never making judgment calls. The heart of this is right. Don't condemn people, okay? You're not the judge and jury. Jesus alone is. Don't condemn people, but it's just, anyways, another message for another time. So the reality is regardless of how we became an offender, we start by letting God seek our own hearts and getting ourselves right before him. If he reveals anything offensive within us, seek his forgiveness. Ask him to forgive you. Then regardless of whether you are guilty or innocent before the Lord, then we need to seek his wisdom in how to proceed. Remember how David's prayer ended, lead me into the way everlasting? Like, help me to handle this in the right way. To not multiply offense, but to put a stop to the offense, get everyone set free and delivered, so that Satan has no foothold or stronghold here. Because we want to honor Jesus in all things. We want to walk by faith and trust in him alone. Whenever it comes to being the offender. Whether it was unintentional and innocent. Whether it was malicious with the intent to offend. We should go, just like you said with the physical thing. Go and apologize for the offense. And ask them to forgive you. Regardless of whether it was intentional or not. Go to the person. Ask their forgiveness apologize for offending them you know because we don't want to be we don't want to be a stumbling block between anyone in christ we're gonna look at this in a little bit ask if there's anything you can do to make it right you know to make amends to make reparations you know we look at it in a biblical sense um to right the wrong regardless of our intention or heart motive this covers the first two scenarios right covers the first two scenarios so if you just do this Trust me, sometimes when you know you're right and you didn't do anything wrong, man, does it take humility to do this, doesn't it? It takes humility. Now, to cover the third scenario, because this one's a little more complicated. Romans 14. If you read through Romans 14, and I urge you to, for time's sake I decided not to this morning, he urges us to stop passing judgment on one another, to instead make up our minds not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of others. He urges us to make every effort to do what leads to peace, to do, to do what leads to mutual edification, to build other people up, to be careful not to destroy the work of God for any lesser thing. It is humbling to realize that there are times when I am the one who gets in God's way of doing a work in someone else's life. I'm the stumbling block. I'm the one that keeps offending them and tripping them up. And all they're trying to do is get to Christ. Or Christ is just trying to draw them to himself. That's hard. But a lot of what causes offense, and especially when it comes between believers, are what are referred to in the Bible as disputable matters. That's the topic of Romans 14. They're not black and white doctrinal absolutes. This isn't telling a lie. Okay, a lie's a lie, a lie, it's always wrong. Okay, the truth is what sets you free. We're talking about, um, you know, uh, oh, there's so many, I don't even want to step on any toes. There's so many arguable matters that we get so tripped up on. And that's sad that I'm afraid to even say one because chances are one of you has a conviction that it's sin for you, but it's not sin for them, you know. Whew. There's so many of these things, so many of these things that you've got, you are the one that stands before Christ on the day of judgment and answers for your own life. So you've got to go with your convictions of what the Spirit has given you. You have to. 
but some of these things are arguable, and that doesn't mean that it's wrong for somebody else, you know? There are things that I'm very weak in in my life, you know? You're not going to find me going into a strip club and trying to lead women to Christ. You won't, you know, because chances are I'm going to get all kinds of tripped up on the way of trying to lead anyone there, you know? But I can walk into a bar because I've got no temptation towards alcoholism whatsoever, you know, and it won't bother me. I'm not tempted. I'm not going to trip and fall and, okay? So there we go. I'll use myself as an example. You know, it, one thing would be sin for me to try to do, even though it seems like a good thing, seems like a right thing. Oh, I could defend that, and I couldn't get away with it with my wife, but, you know, I, I could defend my motives and say they're pure and say I'm doing the right thing, but God judges the heart. He knows, right? He knows what, what I'm doing there. Paul describes it this way. One person considers one day more sacred than another. And this is Romans 14. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything, and I could, again, you could defend these biblically. I mean, back in Genesis, God said to eat only veggies. You could defend it biblically, and then, then here comes Peter, and I love that one, and Jesus lets down that blanket, and he says, don't you dare call anything unclean that I created. Go kill and eat. You know, it's the, the hunter's prayer right there, you know, go kill and eat. I don't care what... I love me some pork. You know, we just had some bacon last night, you know, on top of some meatloaf, and yeah, I'm so glad that I'm not Jewish, and I've been set free from that law. <laughs> Woo! Pork is a good thing. Actually, it was Tim's pork. It was good stuff, too. Bacon, rather. Anyways, I'm sorry. I'm getting myself hungry here. Paul said, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted them both. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants will stand or fall, and they will stand because the Lord is able to make them stand. Arguable matters. But we use these arguable matters to trip each other up, to offend each other, and to keep each other from getting to the Lord. Now we're going to move on to, you know, explain this a little more in depth. Third scenario, we purposefully offend someone to get their attention and to save them. Now this offense, it's not just a, like, dude, your breast stanks right now. It's, it's not that kind of offense. This is the, the millstone offense where you're standing in the way of someone, um, you know, getting to the Lord. This is a matter of somebody who is walking down a path that is leading to their death, perhaps even hell itself. This is the person stepping out in front of a racing car. You're trying to save their life. You're trying to get them out of a dangerous path and onto the right one. Now, if you read through the Bible, you will see that God's people often, often caused offense by speaking truth, even speaking the truth in love. John the Baptist. What did he lose because he spoke the truth? Yeah, he lost his head. He literally had his head whopped off because he spoke truth and offended Herod. Jesus was beaten, put on the cross. Why? Because he kept offending. We're going to read an account of that here soon, you know. Many of the Old Testament prophets and New Testament believers were persecuted, even put to death because of their stand on the truth that caused offense. Stephen, right, got stoned to death. I mean, we could go on and on and on. For this scenario, 
did we see anyone apologize ever? I couldn't find a single example of it, cover to cover. No need to apologize, no reparations needed because there was no wrongdoing. Now as a precaution, this is what we end up hearing in our flesh. That doesn't mean we get a license to take God's truth and intentionally offend everybody around us by swinging that sword and slicing people up, right? That's not what the word is for. It's simply a reality that when we have the purest of motives and heart's intent, even as judged by the Lord, when we speak God's truth, trying to save people, trying to set them free, it can cause offense. It can cause offense. We don't want to be a stumbling block to people coming to Jesus, but Jesus himself, he is the rock upon which you do one of two things. You either stand firmly upon and are saved, or you trip over him and you go straight to hell. There's, there's no in-between. In fact, Paul teaches us 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. He, he said, we want to put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. We don't want to put a stumbling block or be a stumbling block. However, Jews came along and they demanded signs. Greeks came along and they looked for wisdom. But Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. He is a stumbling block to Jews. He's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ himself is a stumbling block to some. He just is. And it's not just to Jews. To this very day he stands as a stumbling block to some. This account happened in Mark chapter 7. And it's echoed in the gospel of Matthew. So whichever you want to read it from, I'm going to actually take half from one and half from the other. Because I like to mess with everyone that way. Sorry, you can look at my notes online if you want to see what it is. But here it says the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, okay? Understand the context of who is in the audience. The Pharisees, teachers of the law. They gathered around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. None of my kids ever come to the table with unclean hands, do they? Ever? Never have to remind you. You hear the bathroom door shut and you're like, ah, did you wash? Is that, is that just me? No, I'm hearing that it's not. This offended them. Because we see in verse 3, in, in parentheses here, the Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they get their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come down from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, is there anything wrong with these traditions? Is it a good thing to wash your plate and your, your cups and your hands before you eat? Especially when you done come from Walmart. We understand why that was in God's law, right? Because now we have microscopes. We see microbes, these little germs that cause sickness and illness and disease. We're aware of why God's law was good, right? There's nothing wrong with doing this. But do you see that word that keeps getting quoted? It was traditional to do this. All the Jews did it. Why? Because of tradition. West Shemokin's doing Fiddler on the Roof here in a few weeks. First weekend of May. They, they're, yeah, they, March. First weekend of March. You're going to hear, they did a whole musical on traditions and, and the Jewish ways. So, they were offended. 
verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. You'll see that Jesus intentionally offended them. He called them broods of vipers. He called them sons of hell. He said when you go out and you win over someone and make them your disciple, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. He said when you speak, you speak your native language. Liar! You know, I mean, he, he did. He was not, he did not mince words about this. He intentionally and purposely offended them. He used terms that would offend them. And he had a purpose behind it. He says, it was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, it's a hard issue. It's always a hard issue. In verse 7, they worship me, but they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Human rules. Jesus said, you have let go of the commands of God and you are instead holding on to human traditions Whew. I don't know if you realize this or not but this was highly offensive to the Pharisees and these were not just anybody these were the leaders of God's people these were these, these were in Jewish culture not only spiritual leaders but they were um, the, but they were the governmental leaders I mean they were it and Jesus said this to them, and, and it, then I'm going to swap over to Matthew 15, verse 12. It says, the disciples took Jesus aside, and he said, they said, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when you said this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they're both going to fall into a pit. Then Peter's like, well, explain this to us. Jesus said, are you still so dull? It's loving Christ like Jesus. I don't know about you all, but, but God offends me pretty often with his word. But it's always in a good way. It's always in a good way. And then he goes on. He's like, haven't you figured out that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? Okay? <laughs> Jesus' words, right? That donut that you ate this morning... You just wait a little bit and see what happens to that donut, okay? It went in your body, it's in your stomach, and if I see anyone run out during worship, we know what's happening, okay? Okay, we, we know. Jesus said, but the things that come out of a person's mouth, those come from the heart. That's what defiles you. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. That's what defiles a person. Eating with, unwashed, eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile them. Not, not from a spiritual perspective. You may, get, you may get sick, you know, but you'll get over it. You'll get healed. It's what comes out the mouth that comes from the heart. Jesus offended the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He often did it. He never apologized, yet he was sinless. <laughs> he never sinned when he did it. His offense was always the third scenario and never the first two. It was always to save people and not to harm them. Sometimes love hurts, but it hurts with the intent and the motive to build us up. <laughs> the only time when Jesus responded positively to their offense was when it came to the temple tax. Okay, as a disclaimer. I found a spot. 
Tell me if you find a spot. Jesus responded to the offense of the people because they weren't paying the temple taxes. Jesus is like, well, I mean, does, does the guy's kid got to pay, really? And I'm the son of God, but whatever. Jesus chose to do something he didn't have to do according to the law. He chose to pay the temple tax by sending Peter fishing, which is one of my favorite miracles. And every time I go to a fishing tournament, that's me. I'm like, Jesus, you did it for Peter. You do it for me. Let there be a tag. Let there be a tag, right? Caught the temple tax and he paid it so that he would not be a stumbling block because it was an arguable matter. Let it go. Let's not cause him to stumble. Let's do what's right. So, his intent wasn't to make the leaders look bad in front of their followers. His intent was to get the leaders back on the right path so that all the people could follow them to the Lord. Paul also wrote a, a, a letter in Corinthian to the church in Corinth, correcting them on a whole lot of issues, right? They had strayed away from God's truth and were in sin. Now, not entirely. They had a lot of things that were going good for them. But there were some areas where they had strayed away. His letter offended them, but it offended them in a good way. He followed up that letter with another letter, and he wrote, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. I did regret it. I know my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Now I'm happy. Not because you were made sad, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. You became sad as God intended, and so you weren't harmed in any way by us. You see the, you see the catch here? This is the heart, motive, and intent of this third scenario. I'm hurting you now, I'm offending you now, but I don't want it to cause you harm. I want it to build you up. I want it to lead to life so that you stop walking toward death. And that's why we got to go to God first when we're offended or when we're the offender. Because more often than not, God is trying to change us through offense. In verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Right? No regret, say. No regrets. None. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did wrong, nor on the account of the injured party. Paul wasn't trying to prove one person wrong and another part, person right. He wanted everyone to get right. He said, rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to him you truly are. And by all this, we are encouraged. So the reality is that God will offend us. His intent is to save us by it. His intent is not to harm us, but to save us. He doesn't want to tear us down, but to build us up. The truth is that ignorance is not bliss. That's a lie. Not knowing that you have cancer, is that going to save you from it? Are you magically cured just because you don't know you have an ailment? I know us, us men struggle with this, I think, more often than the ladies, you know, going to the doctor. I'm fine, nothing wrong, you know. I don't need to go get checked out for that. 
Not knowing if there's a speeding car coming down the street. Is that going to save you when you walk out in front of it? Is ignorance bliss? Does it save you? No. God doesn't want you to walk life ignorantly and without purpose. God will offend you in the worst kind of way, but in the best kind of way. To get our attention, to wake us up. We're heading down the path to death. And he created us for a purpose that we might live and live it to its fullest. And so, yes, he will do that. He will trip us. But he doesn't trip us up to harm us. It's to stop us from the path of devastation. So he can brush us off, heal us up, and redirect us. That's what repentance is. Repent repentance is changing about the way you think about something. Changing the way you think about it so that your thoughts agree with God. That's repentance. Because then when you change the way you think about it, you change the way you act toward it. Your actions follow. That's what repentance is. So the question is, how will we respond when God's truth offends us? How will we respond? You see, we're so concerned in this world, in this culture, about offending some people. They're very easily offended. Very sensitive. But we are called to be a people who are first and foremost concerned about offending God. Offending God than offending man. Living our lives by his word and his truth. Think about Paul's letter and how we will respond. Will we be sad about it alone? Let our hearts get hardened toward God because he doesn't agree with us in the way we're living or the way we think or the way we're acting? Will it harden our heart toward whomever the truth was conveyed to us through? Will we be sad about it but get hardened about it? Or will we be sad about it and repent? Will we soften our hearts toward God and allow him to do a work in our lives to remove what is offensive to him? Will we allow him to remove stumbling blocks within our lives that are tripping us up on our life journey? Let's let him do his work this morning. Repentance doesn't need to be a somber, sorrowful, tear-filled event. Repentance can be a joyous occasion. We thank God that he loved me enough to get my attention. He loved me enough to trip me up. So that I stop walking down this dark and dangerous road. And so that I can walk into his glorious light. Away from death and into an abundant, filled, full life. Right? He loves us. We can thank him for that. We can thank God because we were wandering away from him and he came and rescued us. He came to where you were and he met with you. We can thank God because of his great love and faithfulness toward us. But then he still has hope for us. He still has a purpose for us. We can thank God because he made a way where there is no other way. What we could not do on our own. No matter how many times we tried. No matter how many times we promised. I'm going to do it this time. I got it right this time. And then you went and you tripped yourself up again. God still has hope for you. And he wants to be your strength so that you never get tripped up again. Because last time I read, whom the sun sets free is what? 
Whom the Son sets free is what? All right. Well, no more stumbling blocks. Worship team, come forward. No more stumbling blocks between us and Christ, right? This morning, we're going to thank God. We're going to thank God like we've been saved because we have been. We're going to thank God like as if though he loves us so much that he was willing to hold nothing back from us because he didn't. We're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. 